Welcome to the Middletown Podcast. I'm Kat Hughes. I'm a research officer with Middletown and I'm also autistic. In this episode, we're celebrating an early career researcher and some really great research. In collaboration with Mary Immaculate College, Middletown Centre for Autism have been delighted to work with master's students who are focused on developing autism-affirming and neurodiversity-informed research projects. Carmel Rainsford focused her attention on what's needed for meaningful school inclusion. She spoke to teachers and SNAs who are rarely included in research to find out what they need to be able to support inclusion for their autistic students. I hope you enjoy our chat. Thank you so much, Carmel, for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, I wanted to start out by asking about your area of research. Can you tell us a bit about that? I looked at the inclusion of autistic children in mainstream classes in primary schools. Um, I did it by gathering the views of mainstream class teachers and SNAs who worked in mainstream classes. So that was my area. Um, I suppose education policy in Ireland has is very, and internationally is very much about inclusion and the inclusion of all learners, whatever their background, whatever their home situation, that they're all included in the mainstream classroom. Um, and the Department of Education spends about a fifth of its annual education budget on uh, supporting children with special education needs. Now, this is mainly through the employment of SNAs and special education teachers and I suppose set teachers. But at the end of the day, we still have a lot of children who feel excluded in um, mainstream primary schools. Now, they may feel that they don't want to be in school and exclude themselves. And maybe that's not a fair thing to say, but they find it hard to go to school. But in other situations, they are excluded formally by the school through suspensions or through shortened school days. So what I was really interested in was wondering why we have this inclusive education um, inclusive education policy, and yet the reality in the ground seems to be different for a lot of children. Absolutely. And, and what was it that made you sort of decide to, to study the experiences of school staff then? Um, well, I suppose the government policy of inclusion is admirable, but at the end of the day, it's only policy. So it's actually the staff in the school, in the classroom that have the responsibility of who ha- of enacting um, the policy and putting it into practice. And there's very little qualitative, qualitative Irish research on um, Irish teachers and almost nothing, even worldwide, on the experiences of SNAs. So I just felt it was an area that needed further research. Absolutely. And it is. It's really shocking, isn't it? I think that there isn't is. that. Uh, particularly around the SNAs, and 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 I know they're called different words in different parts of the world, but the research this almost oh I'd say if there's a handful current studies within the last five years worldwide, it's really shocking. So how did you decide on the methods that you use to gather your data? I really wanted to look beyond the statistics. I wanted to look at the person. I wanted to look at their perspectives. I I wanted to be a kind of I suppose, a deeper understanding of the why, the, the real life experiences. So I chose to go down a qualitative route and interview teachers individually. And then, I suppose, for practicality and time reasons, I wanted to interview the SNAs, but I took them as a focus group where they came together and they were a group of colleagues just to get their perspective as well. And did you sort of have any sort of difficulty around the the sort of organising of that and did you find it a complicated process because you have that sort of relationship with the role yourself? Um, in one sense, it was an advantage, I suppose, for recruiting participants because um, I enlisted the the assistance of principals that I would know 
and spoke to them about my research. And they were all so enthusiastic and they all had the teacher in the school that would fit fit the criteria as as they felt. Um, and they were really interested in what was going to happen. Um, I, I went out of my way to try and find teachers from a variety of class levels, from infant experience to senior experience and middle experience. Um, I also tried to get rural and urban schools, um, a mixture of genders. So we had all boys, all girls and mixed. And we had disadvantaged schools and not all within the seven schools. So it sounds like a lot, but I, I wanted to be I wanted it to be a broad spectrum um, of opinions to see what what could I find that was connecting all of these experiences. Brilliant. And what did you find? Um, the first thing and most positive is that uh, classroom per- personnel are really enthusiastic about the inclusion of autistic pupils in mainstream. And they can see the benefits for everyone, for the child themselves and for all the other children in the classroom. Um, and But they also felt strongly that for inclusion to work, the child must be happy. Um, I also found that staff were aware of evidence-based practices when they were working with autistic children. So um, there were staff were using visual supports and they were using sensory breaks and were aware of sensory needs of the children. And they were trying to use the child's uh, special interests to engage them in academic work. So there was a lot of good work going on. However, I also found that some of the strategies were employed in an ad hoc way. Um, it, I suppose there was a, a number of reasons for this. I think uh, the participants felt they didn't have an awful lot of training or they had some training, but not enough. They also felt there was a delay in maybe formally identifying autistic children and then in accessing services. And they really valued the input that the allied health professionals, such as the occupational therapist and the speech therapist, gave them. But just the delay in that just meant that they felt they were in a little bit of a vacuum trying to manage. I also found that mainstream inclusion can be very challenging for the child and also for the staff. Participants were aware of the the classroom environment causing stress to the autistic child, the business of the classroom, the the amount of change in in the day, change to the timetable, last minute changes, the noise, the crowds, the pace of the work, social demands. All these things make things very difficult for the autistic children. And the participants found it was compounded if the autistic pupil had other coexisting difficulties as well that may not be talked about, like if they had a handwriting difficulty or if they had an organisational difficulty, if there were difficulties at home or if there were just a lot of children with needs that needed intervention within the one mainstream class. Um, so all of these things made things difficult. Um, and sometimes children were getting stressed. and. Sometimes that stress could be presenting as as was acting out behaviours. What I did find was not a lot of the participants recognised the acting out behaviours as being caused by anxiety. While they recognised that the autistic child might be anxious, they saw it in a more traditional sense and didn't always recognise that the acting out behaviours may also be connected to anxiety. And for the participants, I suppose the managing of the acting out behaviours caused them a lot of stress. And they worried about the managing the curriculum, managing the situation. And did your participants have any thoughts on the social side of inclusion for their autistic students? 
the complexity of social interactions in school for autistic children is um, not surprising. Um, some some participants talked about social inclusion happening in the classroom, but less so on the playground where a child might be excluded or feel excluded or isolated. And in some situations, participants would have said that other pupils in the classroom, their classmates would come and invite them to play, but they might refuse. So therefore, the invitation might be extended again. So it made me think about the understanding maybe of the autistic burnout, of the masking, about the difficulty that autistic children have in trying to be part of what's going on, but maybe not feeling able to be part of what's going on. Um, and staff didn't quite understand that one either because the invitation was there. Um, a very positive was the, the place of the special autism class in the school. There seemed to be universal um, positivity around it. it. It did seem to be the safe space for the autistic child. And sometimes the difficulty was in um, encouraging the autistic child to leave that safe space and join the mainstream classroom. Um, and I suppose the last and kind of relevant one was as children got older, um, they wanted less and less visible support. They seemed to be very conscious that they were different, but they didn't want to draw attention to any difference. So even if it was something that might help them, for example, the use of an iPad or a, a laptop in the classroom, if that made them seem different, then they didn't want to know. And they were very conscious of SNA support as well, that they weren't being singled out. So I felt there was a lot of thought that provoked a lot of thought, I think, for the future. It, there's so much in there, isn't there? Like between too much, maybe. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, there's lots of directions to go, I would say, for to follow on. But I think, yeah, that that idea of that sort of internalized ableism that students develop where they they don't want to be seen as different even though it might be making their life so much more difficult to not be getting those supports when they need them is so huge and and I think that's sort of a school-wide issue isn't it where everyone if everyone had an understanding of, of neurodiversity and, and different ways of being and sensing the world I think maybe it would be much easier for students to to be able to be themselves and take those supports when they need them. But yeah, there's, there's, and, and even the, 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 the break time, the differences between autistic and non-autistic students. And, and as you say, the fact that potentially they're, they're using the break time to kind of decompress and, and they aren't able to play because they've been sort of overwhelmed in class time. It's, there's, oh, there's so much in there. There is, there is an awful lot in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I suppose a lot that a lot of learning that schools I, I suppose schools can take a lot from us really, or all educators. Um I definitely think there needs to be more training on the presentation of autism. While there is an autism awareness, and I think the subtleties and the more up-to-date research on the subtleties of the presentations of autism. Um and for me, I think it's very important that SNAs can access as much of that training as teachers. Um, I was made aware during the week that SNAs can't access NCSE training. It is seems to be specifically for teachers. So I think if we're going to work together and work as a team, I think we have to um, acknowledge the professionalism of all the staff that are working with children and, and maybe train together and also maybe plan together, you know, so that everybody's aware of what we're doing. Um, I think ideally it's very hard in a school and I suppose coming from a school background. There's so much going on in primary schools 
um, and so many initiatives and so many flags and so many so much good work that it's very hard for individual teachers to be an expert on everything. So personally, I think the way forward may be, and it wasn't just my idea, I think Barry et al. in 2021 came up with this, was that we need a small group of very sympathetic staff who would go and gather the expertise and maybe use that to mentor the rest of the staff uh, in the school so that everybody comes together, that we're not just a few people doing courses and on an ad hoc basis. And that doesn't seem to, the research doesn't show that we learn enough from those ad hoc, those one-off days here and there. Um, that we need to, it needs to be whole school. It needs to be regular. It needs to be more of a mentoring approach. Um, and the other big thing I feel that because I suppose one of the difficulties autistic people have is working in social situations and working with neurotypical peers or communicating with neurotypical peers. I think in schools, school staff need to look at building supports around that a little bit more formally than is currently the case. Um, we need to, research has shown us that, that autistic people can interact socially um, when they're comfortable, when they're regulated when they're interested in what's going on. So maybe we need to look at an audit of what we're doing in the school, particularly around extracurricular activities. There might be loads going on, but is it all sport? I'm asking the question and there's nothing wrong with sport. We love GA in our house, but if is it is it more or is it always contact sports? Like I personally wouldn't have liked a hurley coming at me when I was young, even though my kids like it. But uh, so maybe we need to look at other sports. Maybe we need to look at more singular sports or or even maybe high um sensory sports like like rugby could be one that that because there is a sensory component but maybe it's also other things that are available maybe there's a chess club or a lego club or a film club or a book club or whatever the needs are so maybe a starting point for schools is to look at an audit and how many children are engaging in the existing um extracurricular activities i don't know it's just one Food for thought. Um, but I do think as well, we need to find an opportunity for every child to shine. As everybody's good at something. And if you are the star, and I don't want to hamper on the GA as it is fantastic, <laughs> but if you're making a county team, we'll all know and it's wonderful. But maybe there's a child that's also doing really, really well in music or is doing really, really well in local chess competitions or in tech, take one do, I'll probably pronounce that wrong. But there are other things going on. And maybe we need to recognise those or even ice skating, you know. Um, so I feel that's something, that's a road we can definitely go down in our schools. Absolutely. And yeah, it's that idea of not just sort of focusing on one way of being and, and one sort of way of wanting to play or communicate, just broadening that out and seeing who's being involved and who is comfortable taking part and trying to see how we can broaden it out. Yeah, I think it's it's that sort of double empathy piece, isn't it? I yes, think. I think so. I think so. Yeah. And even maybe the same at lunchtime, that there are, are there more than one option at lunchtime? Is there a solitary option? Is there, I don't know, a climbing wall or something that you can do that's physical, but that doesn't involve other people? So, yeah. and yet have some structure because other children will like the structure of the formal game. So a variety, I think. Yeah, that's it. That's it, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then is there anything that the policymakers can, can take from your findings, do you think? Um, 
I suppose one of the things that kept coming up was the balancing of the curriculum and the needs of every child in the classroom. So I wonder if policymakers should look at the curriculum. It's a very crowded curriculum. It's a very busy curriculum. And there are quite clear targets that teachers are expected to meet within the classroom, which puts pressure which puts pressure on teachers. Um, and I think it's also even more so in secondary school. So I wonder, is there a place to look at the flexibility within the curriculum, especially now that we're looking at the new primary curriculum framework and that there are more options? And as I mentioned, the special autism class was kind of received positively. Now, that looks at the curriculum slightly differently. Well, informally, anyway, I don't know if there's a formal system of curriculum within the, the special autism class. But maybe we could take some of the elements, maybe there needs to be an audit of that and look at the elements from special autism class and see, could we employ some of those within the um, mainstream classroom? Um, also, I suppose looking at the SNA, technically the SNA is a care assistant looking at the care needs of the child. And we've been very focused on the care needs from the get-go, I think, with, with special needs assistance. But the SCSE um, suggested a few years ago about uh, rebranding SNAs as inclusion support assistance. And I think maybe that's a road, I think that would be a very positive road where we look at the training around inclusion for SNAs rather than just on childcare. Um, and maybe that to me would be much more, I suppose, more in line with the findings of this um, research. Um, is there anything that sort of surprised you from the, the process of conducting research? Um, two things, I suppose, it came out. Uh, the positive was how much I enjoyed reading. Um, and the more I started reading something, then I immediately wanted to go and look at the back and look at the reference and look down and read more and more. And it felt like you were going down, I suppose, rabbit holes or getting distracted. So it took a lot longer than maybe it should have. Um, <laughs> but I enjoyed every bit of it. The negative, I think, was the tedium of fixing transcriptions of interviews and I don't do tedium very well and coding the interviews and recoding and recoding and I don't think I was prepared for the hours of work the multiple hours of work that uh, went into all of that but I know this is part of the researcher's job but an unexpected part yeah it's 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 definitely not all glamour no <laughs> that's no. for sure but yeah, no, it can be a, a very tedious job at times. But then, as you say, there are those rabbit holes to go down. And when you find a really lovely research paper and you know that you can follow it into to other papers, that can be quite exciting, can't it? Yeah. And there's so much good research out there. And so and so much in recent years, you know, very positive research. And it's lovely to see that the positivity in the research yeah. and that it's not all about deficits and negativity. And I think it's very important for our autistic children to see positivity, I think, attached to, um, I suppose, being autistic. Is there any advice that you'd give to other students who are sort of setting out on their journey in autism research? Um. I would say it can be very time consuming to do research, especially if you're working as well as a lot of master's students are and maybe busy home life. So it's hard to find the time. So for that reason, I think it's really important that you are doing research in something you're interested in and that is benefiting you so that when you find the reading, it can actually become your happy place. It can actually become the, the I, I want to go and read this. I need to go into the office now and read more stuff. And, and you're almost like, 
cutting yourself off from the rest of the house, which sometimes can be a good thing, you know. So that would be my most important piece of advice is find something you're interested in and follow it. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you want to know more about Middletown, you can find us on Twitter at Autism Centre or on Facebook or Instagram at Middletown Centre for Autism.